I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is like oil. It's toxic. It's expensive to store. And it might just explode on you. You're listening to Crazy Smart Asia, a podcast that explores the unexpected stories of Asia's disruptors. I'm your host, Tamara Lemonier. Depending on your point of view, big data and AI will either save the world or be the end of us. Stephanie C's data science consultancy, Thinking Machines, builds machine learning models for organizations like the World Bank and UNICEF. They use data to tackle the biggest issues facing the planet today, including poverty, the climate crisis, and of course, the fight against COVID-19. But while Stephanie's company is a shining example of how AI can be harnessed to make the world a better place, she's far from blind of the perils of the misuse of data. In her conversation with Genty editor Lee Williamson, former Googler Stephanie covers everything from the privacy paradox to fake news. Stephanie, a self-described basement nerd, also talks about the struggle she's faced as the company's public-facing CEO, why she's never accepted VC money, and why, despite appearances, 2020 might just be the best year to start a company. Here's our conversation. So, Stephanie, I really want to talk to you about two things. Um, basically, how we can use data and AI to save the world and how AI could be the end of us. Super. Uh, the two sides of the coin, right? Basically, the two sides of the coin. I mean, look, you've been using AI um, at Thinking Machines to uh, help uh, the, you know, figure out and counteract climate change um, to deal with uh, poverty alleviation and now COVID-19 as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, how is AI and big data a help in the fight against climate change, for example? And what have you done at Thinking Machines? Um, so on uh, Thinking Machines, uh, maybe a bit of a backstory. Um, so Thinking Machines is um, a, a data science startup that uh, I started in 2015. And our whole mission is to help organizations make better decisions with data. Um, the reason we why we even exist is because um, in, in the modern world, everything is intensely interconnected. Um, we have... Um, every, every, every problem that we have right now is global in nature. Um, if you think about climate change, you cannot solve pro- problems of climate change purely locally, uh, because, um, the Philippines and Singapore are impacted by, uh, the effects of fires in Indonesia. Um, so the Singaporean government cannot actually overstep and regulate Indonesia. Um, we all have to work together, um, in a way that that's very challenging. Um, countries just haven't done this before. Um, and so starting with common goals of, you know, human 
human life, human safety, uh, we have to then build tools that allow us to make good decisions at that level. And that means being able to process massive quantities of data, coordinate across massive numbers of human beings. Um, and that's where you have technology coming in uh, to support this human cycle. Um, so maybe some of the work that we've done um, that's relevant to bring up is um, in support of poverty alleviation efforts in the Philippines, uh, we've built AI models that scan through satellite imagery, um, identifying where uh, economic development um, has uh, been happening, identifying where deforestation is happening, uh, being able to map pretty granularly um, where um, people are getting less poor or where poverty is increasing. Um, and that is where we do in conjunction with statistics surveyors. So classic statistics, uh, the way the Philippine Statistics Authority uh, would understand um, economic development, they would send out a team of surveyors to go across the country uh, sampling communities to interview. And they can only afford to do this every five years because you're going out into the far wilds, um, you're going into... Uh, there's some war zones in the Philippines, um, and you're trying to do this to get the information you need to make good decisions about where should the country invest um, in for uh, economic development, poverty alleviation. Right. Now, if you and there's may, always going to be a five-year lag on that, There's right? always a huge lag, um, and so now you have technology, you have big data from satellite imagery, you have AI. You can marry those two things together, um, and you end up with a stronger hybrid model. Um, and that hybrid model is what is very, very powerful for, uh, you know, AI saving the world. AI does not save the world on its own, but it saves the world by making humans um, more superpowered. Uh, maybe think about the Iron Man suit, yeah? Right, right. So the Iron Man suit is in, it just makes us stronger and, and, and enhances our capabilities, but like by, you know, 100x. Exactly. Uh, but the driving force behind it, the heart and mind behind it should still be a human heart and mind. I like that. That's a really fantastically geeky uh, <laughs> simile <laughs> to help us understand. But it, it helps uh, very much. AI is not the answer. AI is a tool. So how uh, do scientists use that data? How does it how does it feed in? And also, maybe part of this conversation, um, what is a black box model? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about how humans and AI should work together. Um, so this is really a fantastic uh, book by uh, Stuart Russell, who was uh, who's a, um, a giant in this field um, about human compatible. Um, AI. How how do we make AI human compatible? Um, and one of the core ideas there is that we want to move away from black box models where there's no room for human judgment, uh, where it's a black box in the sense that you feed the AI model some data um, and then you just take the output and you apply it without a sense of how did the AI come to make that prediction or decision. Um, sometimes black box models are appropriate. Uh, for example, if a model is trying to uh, tell apart cat pictures from dog pictures. You know, it, it would be, it would be kind of fun to know why, but you don't necessarily need to as long as it works really well. Uh, but if you're asking an AI model to tell you if somebody is going to be, um, to recommend how many years, whether or not somebody should have bail, um, and this is a study they did in the US where, uh, the AI models that, um, almost um, extremely disproportionately um, exhibited bias in that um, if you were African-American, they would recommend an extra five years of jail time or an extra, I think, um, just like a tremendous amount more in bail. Um, and when the scientists who were looking at this model um, 
Um, and this, uh, this is in, um, Weapons of Math Instruction, which is another really good book, uh, to read cool about title. modeling. Um, th- that's the title. Yeah. Um, you find that AI models are mimic models. Many, many modern AI models are mimic models, uh, meaning they will absorb and learn from the examples that you feed into them. And if those examples are already uh, biased to begin with, uh, like in this legal example, then the AI model itself cannot be unbiased because uh, that's all built into it. Um, right. So the AI amplifies everything, catalyzes everything. So if you're feeding in case studies of where African-Americans have got longer sentences because of the bias of a judge uh, or, or then basically the AI is going to replicate that. Yep. You, you just get more of the same if you have a black box model. Um, and so that is sort of the, um, the scary how AI might destroy the world, right? Um, if you um, use black box models for everything um, without considering, um, without being able to um, address why decisions were made, uh, give feedback, uh, because um, black box models are especially dangerous um, if you're not allowed to continuously tweak and tune the parameters um, and give feedback to the model. It's like any other decision-making system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Finally, uh, on the how AI will save the world side of the coin, before we go into the dark stuff, uh, I know that Thinking Machines has been um, working with uh, the Philippines government on the fight against COVID-19. How have you been able, as a data science consultancy, how have you been able to help? Um, what role is, is AI play, playing there? I love that you asked this question because the answer is AI is not helping and should not be helping with the oh, public right. health response for uh, for the Philippines. Um, and this speaks to one of the core weaknesses of AI, which is it is very, very bad at handling new situations. AI is very bad at tackling something that it's never seen before. It is very bad at predicting um, what to do if it hasn't seen examples of it. Humans are actually much, much better at extrapolating from historical experiences um, and figuring out which pieces of it apply and which pieces of it don't and what is maybe uh, the best path forward. Where technologists and data systems help and where we're determined to help is building good data systems, just getting high-quality data in and to the right people quickly. Um, so to this the is, right people, not the right machines, crucially. Yeah. Um, in well, so case. we're ingesting, um, in every country that's responded very well to COVID, um, they have a very strong public health data system where uh, COVID is a... Um, COVID is an exponentially exploding disease, uh, meaning you cannot wait 
for your data. You really have to get it every single day. You have to get it real time. So you need to be able to do contact tracing very well. If you're sending spreadsheets and Excel files around from hospital to hospital, from testing center to central health facility um, on a weekly basis, you just can't. You can't do this. That works if you only have 50 cases. That doesn't work if you're running 10,000 tests per day. Um, so what we're doing is um, we're doing janitorial work. We are shoveling, um, we are shoveling data into the right piles and um, building the right plumbing to get it from A to B to C. Um, and those data points, um, serve, will, will serve to help, um, the Department of Health, um, the national government, local government units, um, make better real time decisions about what's happening. But that's not AI. That's, that's purely data. That, that's data pipeline. Purely data science. That's data janitorial at its finest. Data janitorial. It's data janitorial. Okay, so as uh, janitor in chief, you will be uh, well positioned to answer this question. Then you mentioned about contact tracing, of course, and the need for, and of course, it's been absolutely crucial in helping the places in Asia that have kept things relatively under control under control. Um, but it's also an authoritarian's dream. Right. In this case, it seems like uh, obviously it's a, a crisis and, you know, these measures have been taken and, and we think that they're going to be an anomaly rather than, you know, the longer term. But overall, it's it's not possible to anonymize data. Is that it's, right? It's really hard. Yes. Um, it's um, it's something that I'm not very optimistic about. Um because let me put it this way, um, Carnegie Mellon did a study in 2000 um, that showed that 87% of Americans can be uniquely identified with just your zip code, your birthday, and your gender. Um, imagine buying, just imagine you see, uh, you're on Facebook, you see an ad for a sale, you see a cute dress, you click on it, you buy that dress, you give that company your delivery address, Um while you're checking out that dress, um, the company says, hey, if you um, give us your birthday, we will give you a 5% off coupon for your birth month for you to use. And you're like, great. Well, it just happens. This is my birth month. I was born in February. Uh, I'm going to like give them my birthday. I'm going to get my uh, 5% off. And now this um, this company has your zip code. It has your birthday. And it can basically infer your gender. Um now, if this company's unencrypted um, customer relationship database ever gets breached, you're now uniquely identifiable. And this information can be joined up with all of the other data breaches that already exist. Um, there was that big Experian breach in 2015, uh, where a lot of Americans, their credit scores were exposed. Um, there was, uh, Bukalapak had a data breach in early 2019, uh, where you had, um, I think emails, passwords, um, sorry, not passwords, but, uh, a few pieces of information, email address and name, I think, exposed. And when you just, you just have all of this data about you already floating about there, um, from years and years and years of data breaches, um, to the point where I'm pretty doubtful that anybody can stay truly private and truly anonymous um, and interact in the digital economy these days. Um, so what I'm more focused on is um, maybe um, the minimization of future harm, because that feels more productive um, than this than looking back. Minimization of future harm, as in uh, opening things up, getting some sunlight on it, getting some regulation in. 
Getting some sunlight and regulation, um, changing technology best practices and company best practices. So one best practice, um, you see in Harvard Business Review and you see in all these, um, you see in all these CEOs talking about how, uh, big data is the new oil and they're capturing as much data as they can about not just their customers, but anybody who could potentially be their customer. Um, and they're talking about it as, uh, as a point of pride, right? They're collecting oil. Right, yeah. Jack Ma famously said, you know, big data is the new oil. And people, people love that quote, right? It's like, yeah, it, it sounds so futuristic. But, uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, it is like oil. It's toxic. It's expensive to store and it might just explode on you. Um, I, I really want, um, I really want CEOs and, um, government, uh, policymakers to think about collecting the minimum, ne- like the bare minimum necessary data. Um, to do whatever it is they want to do with it. And if they haven't decided what they're going to do with data, maybe they shouldn't store it. Um, that's really what I have in mind when it comes to minimization of future harms. Um, defense is so much harder than offense. Um, it is so hard to maintain a secure database. Um, it is, it's mostly not even maliciousness, but carelessness that gets people's data exposed out there. So you can't be breached if you don't have data. Um, if you don't have the data in the first place, right? Um, and you should only have a, as, as little data as possible, um, on people. And that, that's going to require a mindset shift. Right. Is it something, cause right now it's all happening on the dark web. It's all happening illegally. Is this something that we can legalize and formalize the, the, the commoditization of data? I, um, I've heard that argument a couple of times. My personal feelings on it is that it's, um, it's, it's, it's very hard to convince individual, um, people, um, that their data is valuable and to, um, give them control in a way, um, give them control over their data because they don't know what to do with it when they have it. So Facebook for many years has been, uh, very rightfully, uh, been attacked for, um, um, capturing a huge amount of data on people, not just what they do on Facebook, but what they do off Facebook. Um, but for all that outcry, people haven't really stopped using Facebook. Uh, people wouldn't really, most people, um, just don't, um, know how to manage their data themselves. Um, and so a monetization model that relies on people being sophisticated enough to, uh, kind of barter and trade on their own behalf and an advocate on their own behalf doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think something that is a much more broad, um, set of either, um, technology standards, ISO standards, or global regulation um, would make more sense here. Another huge downside of uh, AI uh, and, and the way it's impacted our society recently and the way it will continue to impact our society is its role in the echo chambers it's creating on social media, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the factory farm of, of fake news. Uh, the Philippines, you know, um, is... Uh, a kind of petri dish in a lot of ways yeah. of this because of the amount that of uh, time spent online in the Philippines, spent on social media in the Philippines, uh, and a number of other reasons. I know uh, the Cambridge Analytica um, data breach revealed basically after the US, the second biggest breach of data was the Philippines. Um, so, you know, previously uh, in the battle against fake news, what was true, what was what was false, people like me, journalists, were the gatekeepers, right? Uh, whereas now it's tech firms. Uh, but right now, Facebook doesn't have the same level of accountability as the New York Times. Like, do you think it should? Uh, or what is the answer there with regards to, like, how we get this fake news uh, virus under control? 
It, it's funny that you say that because um, you're. I think you're right. Uh, tech platforms are the new gatekeepers. They just don't want to admit that they're gatekeepers. At least the journalists knew that uh, it was part of the professional code uh, that you were um, uh, that um, as publishers. Um, newspapers, uh, television stations, any broadcast entity uh, knew that they had accountability over the content um, being um, rolled out on, on their uh, platforms. Um, and that's not true of Facebook or Twitter. Um, and for, for their whole lifetimes as a company, uh, they've argued for uh uh, they've argued that they're more like a public utility, right? Where um, if you pick up the phone and call somebody, um, the phone company cannot be liable for uh, what you say to that other person. Um, and it, it might even be, a, it is a huge violation of privacy for the phone company to listen in to your calls. Um, so that's uh, that's the standard. The Facebook has thought of themselves like a phone company rather than like a news agency. Um, right, they're not a, they don't see themselves as a, as a publisher, right? Exactly. Um, where I find that metaphor to not work is that um, on Twitter and Facebook, you are not just talking to um, your audience. You are finding new audiences. You are getting exposed via algorithm to um, more audiences. Um, YouTube's recommendation um, feed is optimized for and you know we're coming back to how ai is like hurtful to the world um ai is hurtful because um when it has just one objective it will find strategies that optimize towards that one objective so for the youtube recommendation algorithm what happens is youtube wants to optimize for people watching as much as many seconds of video as possible um, and the algorithm without a human specifying it has figured out over time that what people want to see is um, more conspiracy oriented, is more of the same, um, is more radicalizing. Um, and so there have been some very interesting studies on how um, the YouTube recommendation algorithm has been like a radicalizing force, um, pushing people from um, more um, entertainment oriented channels to more conspiracy oriented channels. Um, and that same thing has been happening on uh, on Facebook um, and on Twitter to some extent. Anywhere where you have AI recommendations, you are pushed towards uh, consuming more divisive content. And, that, and that's a long that's a long way from disconnecting two friends to talking on the phone. It, it's really wild because I went to university. Um, I went to university in California, and um, I, I started my career in the Silicon Valley tech industry. And everybody in that 2005 era, everybody was talking about how they wanted to use technology to save the world to the point where it's a parody these days. Uh, you can't actually say, um, I want to save the world, um, or you're going to get laughed out of the room at any uh, tech pitch. Um, but that spirit ha exists in Silicon Valley. It, it exists in tech companies. A lot of those people, um, they're now, um, you know, they have leadership roles in Facebook, in Twitter, in Google. Um, and it's time to think about how you make these very hard um, choices for uh, uh, that are very political in nature. It's not, um, it's, it's you're part of the civil rights movement now, you know, you're not just part of the tech community. You have changed the world. And so now, oh, great. What do we do now? Um, that's uh, the sensibility. And I, I really believe that these technologists around the world are all going to step up to the occasion um, and figure out what it means to be a technologist and a citizen. So 
Moving on uh, to you. So you um, wanted your company, Thinking Machines, um, you know, you said to me in the past to be a long-term institution and therefore not take VC money, which would mean you're accountable to some people that you had to think a bit more short-term. Um, that was very against the grain a few years ago. Uh, now, uh, where we are right now in 2020, that looks like an incredibly smart move. Um so what do you think is the future of, of, of VC and, and startups that are kind of reliant on that system? Um, the VC money, um, it's like a, uh, it's like jet fuel, right? Um, you want to take it if you want to go someplace very, very fast. Uh, but if you put it in your, um, in your small, um, you know, two door car, your tiny Honda Civic, is going to explode if you try to put um, jet engine fuel in it. Um, so I think that taking VC funding is not inherently bad, but whatever you do with your choice of um, financing, investing, stakeholders, it has to be totally aligned with who you are as a company and what your mission is. Uh, so the Thinking Machines vision, vision the whole mission is um, how do we get organizations to make um, good decisions by building good data systems. Uh, and that's something that I think of in the 20, 30, 40 year time frame. We're dealing with issues that are, uh, you know, climate and poverty are not issues that you can make amazing progress on or, or solve in that seven to 10 year VC fund cycle. Um, so we look for sources of funding that are more aligned with our time scale, which, um, ended up being customer revenue. So um, that worked out really well for us uh, where we work on projects that um, we drive value, we get paid, we reinvest. Uh, we reinvest that into our further growth and building platforms for uh, geospatial AI. Um, and that's working out really well for us. Uh, but if you're a company where you are, for example, um, looking at um, how to expand digital payments in Southeast Asia. And there really is a window, maybe like a five to 10 year window to just go all the way and turn your uh, standard into the regional standard. Then it would make sense to take VC money. Um, I think that venture capital has to get smarter in this next year. Uh, but there's probably going to be, this is weirdly enough, this is a good time to start a company. When everything is going extremely well, when funding is easy, um, it's hard to get noticed. It's hard for a good company to get noticed in the noise. Um, and it's hard to recruit good engineers. Um, and it's, it's, um, um, I think it's an interesting climate to start in a recession. It forces discipline, right? It's funny you should say that because I came across a stat just a few days ago. I can't remember the number now, but a remarkable percentage of Fortune 500 companies started during a recession over the last 50 years. And w why is that? That's really interesting. I feel I, I, uh, I, okay, I can't speak to those companies, but my, my gut feeling as an entrepreneur operating in, um, I don't think we're quite in the depths of the recession yet, but, um, it started and I can see it going, uh, getting worse over the next year. Um, is that when you're operating in this kind of environment, you can't, uh, you can't BS your way through anything. Um, the value that you deliver has to be real. Um, nobody is going to give you revenue for a uh, vanity project. Um, and because the whole economy is doing so badly, um, you can actually pick up really good talent um, who um, otherwise would be um, 
working and maybe overpaid at a tech company or a conglomerate that's, that has a lot of loose cash around. Um, so if you are in that category of company that's very disciplined, uh, that creates revenue really quickly, you learn really fast. You can uh, grow, maybe not at the fastest possible pace, but you grow in a way that builds product market fit um, and um, builds your core strengths so that when the recession lifts, you are in the perfect position to go from zero to 100 really, really fast. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit more of a personal question, if that's okay. And if you don't want to be on the podcast, then let me know and we won't put it on the podcast. Okay. It's not It's not super personal. Okay. Um, but it is information that I came about through an off-the-record source. So, you know, obviously you went with Gen T to the Breakthrough Prize a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and Tamara mentioned that uh, you'd, you'd said to her that you find social situations, they're not your optimal situation. You find them a bit tricky. Oh, yeah. And I can't, I find that really difficult to imagine because the conversations that we've had, you've been incredibly, incredibly social. But, um, you know, I heard that you commented in the past that for you, you know, that's much more difficult than, I don't know, writing any algorithm or, or doing any incredible math problem. Um, why is that? And, and why do I not get a sense of that through our conversation? <laughs> is, is it an act? Is it, is, is it difficult for you to maintain? <laughs> Yeah, it's well, it's gotten much easier over time. Uh, but I got to say my natural tendency is um, uh, basement nerd. But um, I, um, I feel that the things I really want in life are to have people use the technology I build. Um, and you can't do that without talking to people. You can't help people and you can't solve problems without without talking to them, right? It's such a classic computer scientist, technologist flaw uh, to build in isolation and then bring something fully finished into the world, expecting people to receive it in, in, in a very specific way. Um, so, you know, like I do find social situations a bit intimidating and pretty exhausting, but I find them really rewarding in that that's where I get real feedback about um, what is working, what is not working, how, uh, how, how is the world happening? Um, maybe like a, more personal story is um, in high school, I, I joined the high school debate team. Um, and it was so scary that every time I would go up to speak my prepared remarks, this wasn't even impromptu debate. This was like reading remarks off like a sheet of paper that you'd prepped. Um, my hands would shake as I read out the statement. It was, it was very scary. Um, but I've always known that um, uh, you just have to, even if you're scared. I and mean, that's, that's, that's what life is, right? You grow with change, trying to figure out what you want in life and trying to figure out um, what parts of yourself need to rise up to this challenge that you put in front of yourself. Um, and for me, that would definitely be, be the, the social human elements of technology. So something you've worked, you've worked on that you realize that you needed to get better at to be able to do what you wanted to do and uh, going to a, uh, a big conference and networking for you you feel like you put more of a shift of work in than if you were to spend 12 hours looking over over like reams and reams of data. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. After after this call, I'm going to have to like lie down for 15 minutes. It's... <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. It's... Uh... It's, it's part of the funny thing is it's really part of the job though. I'm, I'm the CEO of this company too. I can't not talk to people. I know CEOs who do that and I think that they're not doing their jobs. Um, yeah. 
you you had mentioned to uh, a mutual friend of ours that occasionally at, uh, at, uh, at the breakthrough prize you had to kind of just every hour or so you have to go off for 15 minutes on your own to to read a, a book a little bit just because you needed to like decompress is that is that how you cope is that how you how you put on the the kind of the social facade you you need like times to 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 yourself a little bit yeah yeah um and maybe um i know there are technology founders who are more like me um a bit more how do we say awkward in the body um and it's 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 it really helps everybody needs to figure out their coping mechanism and uh i uh, mine would be um mine is definitely you know after spending an hour focusing on other people um just stepping outside or frankly this i sometimes i just like step into uh the bathroom for 5 minutes to take a breather like no one's going to bother you in the bathroom <laughs> Um, take a breather and just, um, write down notes if I have to, uh, get myself ready for the next round of human interaction and then, uh, get back out there. Uh, yeah, it is, it is definitely very funny to meet people who thrive on that social energy. Um, I respect them so much. Um, I work with a couple of them on my team and, uh, we definitely have this nice tag team thing going where I can just look at them with like, help me with a help me face. Um, and they swoop in. <laughs> That's called teamwork. Right, right, right. So for you, the nightmare scenario is a glass of Chardonnay and you're handed a cocktail party versus, uh, I don't know, having to write an algorithm. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, I was one of the, um, I got Google Glass very early on um, when I was working at Google. Um, I was one of the beta users for it. Um, and one of the first things I tried to do with that thing uh, was to build in um, a facial recognition so that if I were at a cocktail party, it could tell me who on earth I was talking to and how I knew them. <laughs> and were you successful? No, no, I was not. That's enough um, of a reason to look to launch Google Glass. Obviously, <laughs> never got never got launched on its own. I think there'll be a huge market for that. There will be such a huge market for that. I'm kind of glad I didn't succeed because now, um, um, looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, that is probably not a good piece of technology to build. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> There'd be quite a few privacy ramifications around yes, that. Exactly. That's for sure. Uh, well, yeah, I asked you this question. I know it's been a bit off topic compared to the other things we've asked, but I think it's something that is uh, a common theme around a lot of technologists, around a lot of people that that are running tech startups. They, You need to be incredibly social to build and run a team. You need to be incredibly social, uncomfortable with public speaking when you're the face of your company. And for some people, that comes incredibly easy. For a lot of people who have the skills to be able to build a tech startup, it doesn't come easy. That's so true. Um, I watched the Zoom CEO, Eric Ryan, uh, speak recently. Um, and I was just thinking, oh, God bless. Like, he's, he's also awkward. <laughs> um, and, um, that's, um, that doesn't stop people from building fantastic companies. Um, I think all leaders need to have a clear vision about what they're trying to build and they need to be, um, they need to be charismatic enough or they need to be able to express themselves well enough to build a team of people who buy into that vision. Um, sometimes those are employees, sometimes those are investors, sometimes those are uh, partners or customers. Um, and you can do that even if it's, doesn't come, it, it doesn't come naturally. You can do that even if you're feeling uh, really awkward. Because what I find in my case is that um, when I talk about um, topics that I feel strongly about, that I have a strong opinion of, 
a lot of the anxiety and awkwardness vanishes because it becomes background noise to the thing that I'm trying to say that I'm trying to get out there into the world. Um, and I think that's true of, of good technology CEOs also. Right. Any, uh, would you, if you had to give one tip to the people who are more comfortable in the basement, the people listening to this, the young entrepreneurs who, yeah, the idea, their nightmare scenario is giving a pitch. Do you have one bit of advice for them to kind of uh, get better at that side of what is going to be a really important part of of being an entrepreneur? That's a very important part of being a journey. Um, Find a trusted friend to practice with. Don't try to practice by yourself in your room because you need that human feedback. Um, You need that. You need those human reactions to kind of guide you in figuring out this thing that is inside of you that you are trying to get out there into the world that you are trying to say. Um, you need like a human to human API. You need a human to human interface, right? A, yeah. Uh, it's a very techy way. way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the only way you're going to get uh, feedback in building, designing and debugging that human to human API is by talking to another human. Uh, so that is my number one strong suggestion. Whether that person's a co-founder or an executive coach or a mentor or investor, uh, find that person and um, every time you give a talk or you write, write as if you're talking to them. And I think that would, um, I think that would be my piece of very advice that's worked for me over the years. Stephanie, thank you so much for your insight and your honesty in the last portion of our conversation as well. It's been great to talk. Thank you, Lee. I'm going to go lie down now. (laughs) That's it for another episode of Crazy Smart Asia. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a rating and review while you're there. Gen T connects young leaders across Asia. And if you know someone who would resonate with these stories and take something from them, please do share the podcast and help bring them into our growing community of changemakers. You can also follow Generation T on Instagram. We're at at Generation T underscore Asia and Facebook. And check out our website, GenerationT.Asia, for more on the people, businesses, and ideas shaping Asia's future. See you next time. 